0: Retirement is often seen as a destination, but we believe it's an opportunity to pursue your passions, realize your dreams, and live a purposeful life. Great decisions, incredible lives. Retire With Intention podcast is about more than just money. It's about embracing the things that truly matter, the experiences, the relationships, and the impact you leave behind. Here is your host, John Kriegmer.
1: Well, everybody, welcome back to the Great Decisions, Incredible Lives, Retire With Intention podcast. I want to tell you, today I am so pumped. I have David Roosevelt with us and uh, from Dallas, Texas. And uh, it's just been a tremendous joy uh, to be able to meet him and to be able to kind of walk through some common backgrounds and, and even some really favorite vacation spots for families. Maybe we'll hop into some of that today. We'll see how things go. But, uh, you know, David is just a phenomenal resource, a phenomenal thinker as far as on credit markets, as far as interest rates, where things are really kind of navigating from and where we're sitting at now. And uh, just uh, probably the proper way to think through things. And as you all know, we really kind of walk through some core principles On how we can kind of live that incredible life, which that incredible life is your definition of an incredible life. And the first one is is that you know your core values. And number two is that you set goals based upon your core values. But at the end of it all, number four is to be open to wise counsel. And I want to encourage you today, as you kind of walk through what we're going to talk about today, is to recognize that this to be open to wise counsel. And oftentimes, we look at social media and we see things that are on different platforms we're looking at. Maybe we do a Google search online, or we look at the news media, and we have a lot of counsel. But really, is it informed? Is it educated? Is it wise? Not quite certain. And as you're a listener and uh, follower of Cribmer Wealth over the years. You know that we really strive to introduce you to people that can help you make good decisions. And I know with David today, that's going to be a key point as far as the things that we're walking through. It's a little background of David as far as uh, his background and as far as the things of interest to him. A little glimpse into who he is. And uh, and so if David, he is the founder of Roosevelt. I just kind of blipped out here. Is it Roosevelt? Well, Roosevelt. Ah, there it is. Roosevelt Capital Management. Here we go. So founder of Roosevelt Capital Management, apologize for that. Not to be directly responsible for investing, risk management, and trading. His entire career has been in the investment management business. And so Roosevelt Investments, a family office. Morgan Stanley is a credit portfolio manager, risk manager, and trader. Over at Jacobson Partners, as a private equity. And then also BlackRock as a fixed income account manager. MBA as an Austin Scholar with honors from Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern. University, a bachelor's too loud even from Barbara University. And so a huge background, phenomenal mind when it comes to the markets. That I'm really excited to have David with us today. And David, how long did you found Roosevelt?
2: Yeah, so uh, Roosevelt was founded about five years ago, although we've been doing this for a lot longer. And we have a 13 uh, year uh, track record in the
1: fixed income space. You know, they say track record. And I saw a little thing on your website. Was it GIPS? Is that what it was? So are you familiar with the term GIPS compliant? Yeah. Could you explain that to everybody, what that means, and why is that a big deal?
2: Yeah, so the CFA Institute uh, has a standard, and that for calculating returns um, for different types of managers. So a, a Gibbs compliant manager means that you have met that standard, and in our case, we we have met that standard, and we've been verified by uh, a firm called ACA Compliance. The reason that standard is so incredibly important is when you start calculating returns, there are a lot of different ways that they can be calculated, and and as a, as an investor or as somebody who's seeking investment advice, it's always good to know as the person who's giving you advice, do they have a track record, and is that track record calculated correctly? And so that's why we uh, went out and got the uh, GIPS standard, um, GIPS compliant standard for for our firm.
1: And David, you know, I really um, that that makes so much sense, and I've I've looked at GIPS in the past as far as the calculation, as far as the way it's walked through and verified, and I remember a story, it's probably goodness, seven, eight years ago, and we had someone come into our office talking about the rate of return they were receiving from their current advisor. And the numbers were just astonishing. I was like, wow how in the world is that happening well the devil's in the details because the calculation was so incorrect and they were actually inputting ongoing deposits as actually growth in the account their calculation which that's a simple error but it really put a person where they were really underperforming their risk-based measurement indices by a large portion but they thought they were outperforming and it affected their decisions as far as on being in a good spot so i think it's critical for all the listeners to understand it that means that David today is going to be speaking from a position of making sure everything that's communicated is technically accurate. That is really kind of who he is as an individual. And uh, it's a big part of making sure you're working with someone that is, ours on the GIPP standard. And so, moving through things, I mean, you've worked at some pretty prestigious institutions like Morgan Stanley and BlackRock and uh, tremendous educational background also. But what insights and skills did you bring from those experiences whenever you found in Roosevelt Capital?
2: Yeah, boy, this- such a great question. Each one of these organizations has taught me different things, and uh, fixed income is pretty esoteric, and the concepts in it are really pretty, pretty challenging. So, John, it's amazing. Like when I was at Morgan Stanley, I was like, "Oh, that's what the vice president I was working for at BlackRock is trying to teach me." <laughs> now I, I finally got it. <laughs> you know, these concepts of duration, yield, yield to worst. Yield to call, default risk, reinvestment risk. These are just these are not things that the average person is thinking about day in and day out. So, uh, you know, I started my career at BlackRock in 1993 after I graduated from college, and it is fair to say I was try, just trying to figure out which way was up because you know business, accounting, finance. It is a really it's a different language in each area of business. Each specialty of business is its own language. So when I started at BlackRock in 1993, it was really just about forming the pieces of the puzzle of the language. Those things that I just mentioned to you. What's a corporate bond? What's a treasury bond? What's a muni bond? What's an asset-backed security? What's the different characteristics of each? What are the, the variables that we use to measure those characteristics? So BlackRock was really just trying to form the pieces of the puzzle to understand things better. Jacobson Partners, which was a private equity firm, that I worked for uh, also in New York after uh, BlackRock, that really taught me financial model and it taught me about bank covenants forecasting credit analysis things that we some, some of us are very familiar with these terms like debt to EBITDA interest coverage ratio so that was kind of BlackRock business school uh, you know I, I still have two professors in business school who um, were very very important to my learning uh robert mcdonald from northwestern know, and uh, Scott and and taught a class called decision analysis it created decision trees and how to think probability That's so critical in business and in in the fixed income space. Robert McDonald taught me all about derivatives. And then I went to Morgan Stanley and uh, I started trading uh, credit default swaps. Uh, Single name credit default swaps, and some of your listeners may be familiar with something called. Thinking, what is a credit default swap? A default swap is effectively a derivative, and it's, it's insurance on bonds. Okay. And there's something called CDX, which is an index that a lot of people focus on in the credit space for corporate bonds. Which measures the spread between U.S. treasuries and corporate bonds, and it's effectively a a basket of a whole bunch of individual credit default swaps. So, and after, so I learned a lot about, you know. probability as it applies to credit uh at trading the ball swaps then i moved over uh to the loan desk and more little known fact all the firms on wall street that they all have to own loans and people are like well why why was it would a morgan stanley a goldman sachs uh, you know own loans and it's true of jp morgan and citibank and chase well somebody like a PepsiCo, they're not going to give morgan stanley or goldman sachs or barclays that that plum m&a assignment right. unless morgan stanley's in the syndicate that's lending them money. So Morgan Stanley, when I was there, had a, a, a book of, of loans, $60 billion long notional portfolio, and it was a mark to market book. So we had a $30 billion of shorts against it in order to hedge the, the mark to market risk as well as the idiosyncratic risk. So that desk was fantastic because I really got to learn about everything in the credit space and in the interest rate space, interest rate swaps, how to fund these loans. We, we uh, I launched a, a CLA low. Uh, Stanford collateralized loan obligation as a funding source using our loans as collateral to help Morgan Stanley get cheaper funding. Correlation products, which is just trotching uh, default risk on these things. Options on credit default swaps. So tremendous exposure to the whole area of interest rate risk and credit risk at Morgan Stanley, as well as international exposure. Uh, our desk managed not only the, the North American risk, but also the European risk and the Asian risk for Morgan Stanley. So, and, and I'm going to digress here if it's okay and, and t- t- tell you a little bit about my family because it, it was October of 2008 and I was with my wife and my two younger daughters, six and five at the time and uh, I looked over at my wife and I said, honey, I'm not sure Morgan is going to exist as a solvent entity. She looks at me and she goes, I understood a lot of the risks of being a Wall Street trader's wife, but having Morgan Stanley go bank- bankrupt was not one of them. Yeah. And then she said, are we building our lives on sand. Mm. Um, We lived outside of the city at that point in in a a little community called Larchmont. I was on a 529 a.m. train in the morning, got home around 730 at night. So, it's fair to say that those things by themselves made my wife kind of feel like a a single mom. Wow, sure. So, uh, I I looked at her and I said, you know what, you're right. Hopefully Morgan Stanley doesn't file. We were pretty close in October of 2008. They didn't file. File. And March is 2009, after I got my bonus, uh, we resigned and we moved back to Dallas. Um, My my family has a a family office here. We're we're a family that has been in the oil and gas business for many, many decades. So I came back here to manage my family's liquidity bucket, if you will. And as a part of managing that liquidity bucket, I had other families start coming to, to our family and saying, hey, we really like what you guys are doing in terms of managing your family's liquidity. Would you manage our liquidity the way you're managing your families? And the answer was, unfortunately, we can't because we, as a family office, we operated at a family office exclusion. And so I ended up uh, eventually forming a registered investment advisor, separate these things from the family so that we could start managing some of those folks' capital. And so we, we've we been, as Roosevelt about capital manager, management, managing third-party capital for approaching four years now. And um, uh, so we've been having a lot of fun doing that. And we started, obviously in a fixed income space because that's what I was doing on behalf of the family.
1: Yeah, an incredible story. When you think about it, that 2008, 2010 time period, that was sort of transformative in so many people's lives, uh, as it was with you and your family, um, and recognizing, boy, what a wise question by your wife. You know, are we building our lives on the sand? I mean, that's, that's an incredible thought. And yet, just by taking that and processing that, it's kind of like, man, that changed the direction of your life. And and when I think about it, in that time period, there was just a lot of complexity in the financial financial markets and we still have complexity today and there is a lot of instability happening in the financial markets caused by a lot of different factors. Right. And we look at where we're sitting at today. And so today we're sitting in a period of time post COVID in which all the governments of the world they pulled so many lovers and bullies in that period of time. And I always believe truth that time is the greatest uh indicator where things are at. Is that a good decision, bad decision? We find out in time. Reality is though it created instability in the financial markets. And even where we sit right now we're seeing a lot of, of things that happened even in 2022 with the Lehman Brothers bond index was what down 16% thereabouts last year. Yep. And so a lot of folks looked at their cash management and they looked at their short term risk management and they saw negative numbers there. Can yep. you walk us through a little bit, David, uh, in this recent period of time? And there's so, some similarities and some differences the past times of instability. Can you walk us through kind of where we're at as far as interest rate cycle, where we're at as far as risk, and even some things that we've already Experience this year, banks going into default or as, as a major their credit risk. Uh, U.S. government received their Fitch uh, rating actually got decreased. Uh, we have a number. I think it's the last number I saw, Fitch said they might be decreasing ratings on thirteen different banks, and it came out today. Can you walk us through kind of where we're at on interest rates and from a risk standpoint, how would a manager view where we're at right now of managing risk?
2: Yeah, such great questions. So let's take a little step back and just talk about what are the major risks that one needs to think about when they're allocating capital into the fixed income markets or cash markets. First and foremost, and you've alluded to two of them, interest rate risk, right? What is interest rate risk? Because people got hammered. And I think a lot of those people don't necessarily understand why. Yeah, good point. Yeah, and then there's default risk. In the area of default risk, you bring up kind of Silicon Valley Bank and the whole regional banking crisis and just default risk in general. There are also, kind of I'd say two other major risks in, in the fixed income space. And one is what I'd call complexity risk. And we see those in, in types of structures like CLOs, which are kind of one of the soup de jours today. And the, the last risk is what I would call liquidity risk. Can you get your money when you need it? So let's talk specifically about interest rate risk for a second. So Interest rates, when, when people talk about interest rates, it's, it's a, they talk about the interest rate, they, they, they talk about it as if it's one thing is actually many different things. There's something called the yield curve. And that yield curve is a collection of all those interest rates. So the Fed funds rate is effectively an overnight rate. And it's kind of the rate that everybody's talking about uh, most of the time. And as a result of the pandemic, Fed fund rate was effectively zero because of what you have alluded to, which is massive inflation that was a function of central bank stimulus, not only here in the United States, but globally, combined with significant supply chain disruption, you had significant inflation. well What is the Fed's role? The Fed's role is to fight that inflation because inflation, for and we can talk about this later if you'd like, but it can be very damaging to an economy over the long term. Okay, so and let me actually can I share my screen? Do you mind if I yeah? yeah so good. let me share my screen with you because there's there's the old adage that a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Let, let's just go take a look. At the the five year treasury, right. So if we go look at the five, and uh, John, what we're looking at here is Bloomberg. This is this is a screen from a Bloomberg terminal. And let's just go look at the five year treasury over the last five years. So right down here, this is kind of February of uh, of of uh, of two thousand, which is right right for right, right at the time of the pandemic. The five year treasury was thirty basis points, right? So today it's Four spot three three percent. This rise in interest rate is really unprecedented. And if we if we look back and if we looked at this through the lens of the ten year treasury, we, we can look at it through the one year treasury, five year treasury, ten year treasury, thirty year treasury. It's all going to show the same story. Interest rates were incredibly low pre pandemic. Post-pandemic, and then because of the inflation that the pandemic created, interest rates went up significantly. Now, let's talk about let's talk about what that does to a portfolio. There's this concept in fixed income called duration. Let's assume you're investing in a bond, John. Let's let, let, let's use the most extreme bond possible, the 30-year Treasury, right? Has, has no default risk. In theory, the safest security in the world, or U.S. Treasuries, are the safest securities in the world. What buyers of that? charity didn't appreciate is that even though it might be the safest security in the world from a default risk perspective, anytime you take on interest rate risk and you take on interest rate risk, the further out the bond you buy matures. So there's this concept called duration. I'm not going to get into the math behind it unless you want to. We can do that later. But in essence, all it says is if interest rates go up by 1%, the value of the bond that you hold is going to fall by the duration. So if you own, a bond with a duration of five and interest rates go up by 1%, the value of your bond should fall by approximately 5%. Well, so let's just put this in context. You own a five-year treasury, interest rates go up 4%. The, the theoretical math says the value of that bond should go down by 20%. I can guarantee you financial advisors who are putting their client capital in you know securities with any form of duration didn't necessarily appreciate because history hasn't Shown them that it would be this drastic that the value of their fixed income holdings were going to fall so dramatically. Yeah. So where do we stand? Okay. So we just walked through where we were. What you know, pandemic interest rates were incredibly low as a result of the inflation from the pandemic. We had this inflationary spike. As a result of that inflationary spike, the U.S. Uh, Fed has raised interest rates significantly forcing the whole yield curve up dramatically okay so where are we today let's look at another bloomberg screen so we, th- th- this is another bloomberg chart and it shows what is priced into the fixed income markets in terms of future interest rates future fed fund rate so you can see we're, we're right here a little over five percent and what this is telling you is kind of it, it at the end of this year Fed fund rate might go up a little and then it's going to start falling so what does this mean so what. Does means is is the vast majority of the interest rate raising the market believes is over. And another term for that is tightening, and that the Fed is going to have to start reducing interest rates kind of in early two thousand late 2023, early 2024, really throughout 2024. And the market is anticipating that they're going to do that really in response to how the higher interest rates are impacting things like uh, uh, our GDP and our employment. Those are two kind of headline metrics that our Fed is really focused on. And as unemployment starts potentially being less strong uh, as our GDP, people are talking about us having a soft landing at this point. There's still significant debate about whether or not we're going to have a soft landing. But but in, in your regard, the market is expecting that int- the Fed is going to have to reduce interest rates in order to stimulate the economy in
1: 2024. So David, industry, interesting, whenever you're talking about interest rates Moving up, but the duration is five and. Rates move up to 4%, well, then we potentially see a 20% decrease in the valuation, somewhere in that decrease as far as the valuation of those fixed income holdings. I'm assuming the converse also holds true as far as for our listeners, that if we're holding a duration of 5 and interest rates decrease by 2%, then they should see relatively about a 10% increase as far as the value of their fixed income holdings. Does that a little true about the same way?
2: The math certainly holds true. Um, but let's talk about the shape of the yield curve. I'm going to pull up what we call, know, I'm going to share my screen again. Uh, let me share it this time. I'm going to pull up what we call the Treasury's Treasury Actives curve. So this is the shape when it comes out. Johnny, we talked about it before we started this podcast, but the, the term inverted yield curve. Right, so this is the shape of the the yield curve today, and as you can see, from about the six month part of the curve through the ten year part of the curve, it is inverted. So you, the math that you articulated is absolutely correct. I think the question is if the Fed starts reducing interest rates, right? They have control of this part of the curve, the very front of it. If they start reducing interest rates and in, and the Previous stream we looked at showed them, you know, about a percent. So if they lowered it here, I think the question I know I certainly have, I, I don't have a crystal ball on this. Is the 10 year, the seven year, and the five year, are they also going to go down? Or are they, is, is just the shape of the front end of the curve going to kind of come down and normalize the shape of the overall yield curve? So that, but the math you articulated is absolutely correct. If interest rates come down, you know, uh, 1%, if this 10 year interest rate comes down one percent and this has a duration, 10-year treasury duration of seven, you're right. The value of that bond would go up by about seven percent.
1: So part of the way that our listeners should look at that would be to look at the look at their length of term and duration, and they'll look at the actual movement of that duration. So it's not to say if we have the, you know, the ultra short term, that one mother going down by three percentage points, that we should look at that, compare that to the 10 year, it wouldn't hold true. You want to match up the duration with the actual movement of the duration to kind of give you that general back of the envelope calculation on that. The um, you know, It's what I kind of think about this. We hear a lot of people talking about you know different tried and true philosophies on portfolio management. And some of that they start to question and they read things online. And so one of the old rules of thumb is you want to diversify your assets. You want to have an allocation to your growth assets, an allocation to your fixed income assets, an allocation to your cash assets. And then you have real estate in there, and then you have private equity, and you have other you know, other different types of assets in there. But as far as, let's just say the equity versus fixed income discussion, an old rule that a lot of folks look at a 60%, 40% portfolio, and they cut it as a benchmark. And there's a lot of discussion that the 60-40 portfolio is dead because they were correlated last year. The S&P was down over 19%, and the bond index was down over 16%. And so therefore, it's too correlated on a diversification. If someone's having that thought, Thought, how should they be thinking through fixed income as a portion of their overall allocation? Yeah, such such a
2: great question. You know, the, the way we think about asset allocation is one absolutely must know what the objective of that capital is mm. and marry okay. the objective of that capital with the characteristics of that asset class that they're investing in. That is, to me, that is the most important thing we're talking about here. Mm. Uh, we we are fixed income guys and we are the first guys in the room to say if you have long-term capital you should not be in fixed income mm. uh, why because if one analyzes equity at a very high level equities versus certain elements of fixed income versus certain elements of the cash market you'll, you'll find that effectively equities always be fixed income over the long term now that's a big general statement so you know it's so critical that a financial advisor who really understands a client's specific situation can guide that client through kind of really understanding the objective they have with certain buckets of their capital and, and appropriately marrying that objective with the asset class that the investor is investing in. So, um, you know, we, we do cash management and fixing code. Well, our cash management is fixing income. We're just investing cash when u.s treasuries but when we invest that capital in a u.s treasury we are not investing it in a u.s treasury that comes due in with 30 years or even 10 years or even five years why because when somebody thinks about cash they're thinking i want to know that i'm taking no risk whatsoever with that money number one number two they want to know that they can get that money anytime they need it it is a hundred percent liquid so when you think about that like there are certain risks that you can't take when you allocate cash in the fixed income markets, mm. which and duration or interest rate risk is one of those. So we are actively investing people's cash in treasuries that mature between today and you know, six months from today. And and we can guarantee our clients safety of principle, liquidity, they can have it tomorrow or even today, they tell us by a certain time. And because we're allocating that money to US Treasuries and we're watching the shape of the front end of that curve like a hawk and we're actively managing it, that client knows that they're going to do better than their any bank that's going to hold their money, any CD that's going to hold their money, and any money market fund that's going to hold their money. So that's cash. But we still will look at that client and say, in your cash bucket, you're still leaving money on the table. But that's okay, because what you're getting for leaving that money on the table is the, the assurance that you can have that money anytime you want, mm. without taking any loss of principle. But then in our unconstrained fixed income strategy, We are sure that over the medium to long term, we are going to significantly outperform those folks who are in our cash strategy, but there's going to be more volatility and drawdown associated with those portfolios just because we're taking more interest rate risk. We're taking more default risk. We're experts in managing those things, but because there's going to be volatility, if you will, on the market of that portfolio, we tell people you shouldn't deploy capital in this, you know, unconcerned spring fixed income portfolio unless you have at least two and a half years. So, again, it's it's critical to match the objective of the capital with the characteristic of the asset class that it's being invested in. That is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you spend more time thinking about wealth management than I do. But to me, that's a core principle in everything that's being
1: done. You communicate so well, Dave. I mean, the principles that we have is that we set, you know, make sure we know our core values, that we set goals based upon the core values. The goal has to have of a time frame yeah. when you're going to need the capital and what is the dollar amount of the capital you need in that time frame. And then we set our financial resources to realize the goals. Well, that's when you'd say we have a goal objective of X number of months, X number of years. Well, that's when we'd have a liquid managed account or a short-term account that is tied to that. But if our goal objective is longer, well, then you go into sort of maybe the higher risk investments. But The closer you get, you start shifting more and more into the guaranteed liquid side. So, I mean, that was just brilliant the way you, the way you brought that down as far as the Timeframes time frames and, um, and the way that different management strategies make a lot of sense on the fixed income side and the cash side. So, it's beautiful. Well, we have covered a lot of stuff, David. Is there anything else in this first discussion? I can I know we're we'll going to get a lot of comments. they are going to say, hey, can you bring David back on? So, maybe under phase two, we'll kind of go more detail. But anything else that we've not talked about that you think, man, is critical right now in this moment to get this concept or thought out to people?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. You, you know, the most important thing is the thing we've talked about. Matching and, and, and we're fixed income guys, <laughs> so and we're fixed income guys who will tell our clients, "This is long-term capital. You got ten years. Don't don't worry that there's going to be a recession tomorrow." Like so, one thing we 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 haven't talked about that I think is so critical is the importance of not fooling yourself with your ability to forecast the future. Mm. The, the fact of the matter is, if you go read any study about the accuracy of X, Expert forecasts, you find that you might as well have just thrown a dart at a dartboard. Truth is, none of us know what the future holds. We don't. Now I think we all hold certain things to be absolutely, effectively, 100% immense. Like, is the United States going to continue to exist? I'm a patriot. I absolutely believe that. But so, if assuming the United States continues to exist, it's critical that you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when you acknowledge that you do not have the ability to forecast the future. Within that framework of, I don't know what the future holds, because the markets are effectively a paramutual betting system, which means that it is actually pricing risk and reward. There are certain things we do know. What are those things? Over the long term, I'm going to start at the top of the food chain. Over the long term, venture capital will outperform private equity. Why? Because all things being equal, venture capital is taking more risk than private equity because it's smaller companies. And ideas don't have necessarily revenue associated with it. So if you're to take more risks over the long term, you need to be more highly compensated. Now, private equity is going to outperform public equity over the long term. Again, why? Well, again, a very broad, broad brush stroke. Private equity—assume it's the exact same thing as public equity, but no liquidity or less liquidity. Okay, so you need to get compensated more for that. Public equity is going to outperform bonds because bonds—you know, let's just use corporate bonds as the example here—are lower in the capital structure than the equity is. A Corporate bond is on average, they're going to outperform U.S. Treasuries. So there's this a cheap principle. Now, so while you might do better, the higher part of that capital stack, um, you know, venture capital, private equity, public equity, there's going to be a lot more volatility. You might like public equity, SP 500 experienced a 56% drawdown in 2009. But don't let that dissuade you. Don't let the, the pundits who are saying, you know, we have a recession around the corner. The fact of the matter is, people thought it was going to be a hard landing. Nine months ago, today they're wondering whether it's going to be a song landing or no recession at all. The fact of the matter is, we just don't know. So, but we do know equities will outperform. So, slowly use principles like dollar cost averaging and slowly leg in to if you with your longer term buckets of capital into the things that you know will absolutely outperform over the long term. Now, on the the shorter duration stuff, you know, that's where guys like us come in uh, to make sure we significantly outperform the markets. So. Uh, that was a lot longer uh, kind of final thought than you wanted, but uh, that's where I'll come in. Kind of- um,
1: I'll tell you what, Dave, that, that's a great summary as far as on expectations people should have based upon their time frames and their, their risks that they need to take and to align that with their goal objectives. And, uh, David, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today and um, and just kind of walking through some things with helping people make better decisions. an um, area that's critical for them. Well, that's their that's the risk management on the cash side, on their fixed income side and uh, phenomenal resource. Um, everybody to see you know the notes uh, section of the podcast. Uh, you'll be able to find in contact information for David. Uh, RooseveltCapitalManagement.com will be linked in there. I would point your direction to a couple of things on their site, the strategies tab, and also the commentary and news. I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, myself, actually, in commentary and news, I direct you to both of those. And uh, contact information also, if you want to reach out uh, to David, or you can always contact us here at Cooper Well, and we'll get you in contact with David the best way possible. Again, Everybody, thank you for listening to Great Decisions, Incredible Lives. Retire and live with intention and look forward to catching you again next time whenever we drop the next podcast. Talk to you all later.
0: Thank you again for listening to the Great Decisions, Incredible Lives, Retire with Intention podcast with host John Creekmer. Follow us on social media, visit our website, and join our community of like-minded individuals redefining retirement and living incredible lives. Please leave us a review and share our podcast with others who may benefit. We wish you a future filled with purpose, fulfillment, and the joy of living your incredible life in retirement.